Father, we thank you that though this world in its fallen state after the sin of the first Adam did not deserve any light or revelation, that in your mercy, in your grace, you did not leave us without a testimony of your character. We see this in two ways in the world that yet retains so many imprints of your design, your beauty and power and glory manifests in the natural realm. We see this in your holy word, the testimony of revelation, which you spoke by the prophets of old, recorded through your servants, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and bound together, Lord, by those who treasured your words all the way through the ages to be delivered to us today. Herein is the precious truth of your world and your word, your nature and your character and our salvation revealed. We pray today and this year, Lord, as we enter into a new season, that you would increase our value and appreciation for the holy word of God. That the truths that you have declared and laid forth, we would treasure them and seek them out as a miner would search for precious metals. I pray that as we dig into your word this year, we would do so with the fervor of one who would seek out silver and gold and precious gemstones. And that when we find those things that you have revealed in the pages there, therein, that we would hold them close to our heart, that we would not let them be lost on the distracting world around us, that be lost on the things that would steal and kill and destroy the testimony of your grace unto us, Lord, this world and its distractions, but instead that they would be to us, Lord, our treasure and our hope. I pray this day as your word is proclaimed, that you would cause us to value it so, so that where our treasure is, our heart would be as well, and that our treasure would be Christ, and that our heart would be with him. We also pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would draw the lost unto salvation in Christ alone. We pray that you would draw our attention to your holiness as it's revealed in scripture this day, and that you would cause us to bow before it. Lord, in repentance and faith, we do not know you yet, those within the hearing of this message. And increase, Lord, encouragement and equipping to walk in a manner worthy of the call for those who are in Christ. And all of this that you may be glorified. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn our attention to God's word in Psalm 99. Turn there with me if you would. In a moment we'll stand for the reading of the scriptures. The aim of this morning's message is to feature the holiness of God, considering the testimony of this Lordship song. This Lordship psalm, Psalm 99, features the holiness of God. And so the aim of this morning's message is to draw out how God's nature, in particular His holiness, is evident in the examples cited, in the truths proclaimed, in this body of work, this worshipful song of praise unto the Lord, Psalm 99. The title of this morning's message is a phrase from the end of the chapter, namely, Our God is Holy. Our God is Holy. Psalm 99 answers the question, two, two questions, how is God holy or what ways do we see His holiness? And secondly, how should we respond in light of the holiness of our God? With that introduction, would you stand once more this morning out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? And listen in your hearing as the word of God is proclaimed to you in Psalm 99, verses 1 through 9. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. 
The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 99 magnifies the preeminent attribute of God as the song proclaims the holiness of Yahweh. God is holy in all his attributes, therefore his holiness is often considered his preeminent, his primary, his overarching attribute. The descriptive quality of holiness cannot be underestimated in describing our great God. Psalm 99 declares as much in poetry and song. As we've noted through the course of this section of the Psalter, Psalm 99 is seventh of eight, if you will, Yahweh is King songs in this section of the Psalter. This theme is repeated several times to show all the world and God's people that the Lord reigns. The first phrase of Psalm 99. Psalm 98 carried the same theme, did it not? Verse 6, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Psalm 97 declared in verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 96 bids us, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And so it goes, declaring his glory among the nations. These are just several examples of the Lord's kingship, his ultimate sovereignty proclaimed in the Psalter in this section. We have a set of eight songs that do exactly this. Psalm 99 is therefore a fitting addition to the catalog of anthems exalting the magnificent sovereignty of our Lord. Psalm 99 demonstrates the holiness of God is perhaps better appreciated in light of revelation displaying his attributes than merely by noting a definition. Someone might ask, well, what is holiness? Holiness by definition, we could say a few things. It is morally perfect. Someone who is holy is without moral flaw, without flaw entirely. Someone who is holy is sacred, set apart. In the Latin, there's a phrase called sui generis. Have you ever heard that phrase? (coughs) You could add that to your vocabulary. It just means in a class by itself. God is holy. He is sui generis. He is in a class by himself. There is no one like him. He is completely set apart and unique in the sum of his being. In this way, he is holy. More than this, holiness means power, authority, that which he uh, projects by way of his office and his acting capacity. Often in the Psalms, we see the imagery of his right hand and his holy arm. 
These are ways, anthropomorphically, using something human to display a spiritual truth, namely God's intentions to act. These are ways of displaying God's holiness. Again, His power, His authority, His complete sacredness, unique beauty, splendor, magnificence, and His moral, perfect being. All of this is His holiness. But I submit to you that this description... This attempt at merely a definition falls short in its ability to appreciate the holiness of God. Psalm 99 demonstrates that His holiness is better appreciated than by mere definition with the addition of the light of revelation displaying His attributes by Him showing Himself through the course of Scripture. The Lord has communicated His holiness through the burning bush calling of Moses, for instance, Children, what did God command Moses to do um, when he showed, appeared in that burning bush? He said, you're supposed to take something off. You guys remember what it was? That's correct. Why was he supposed to take off his shoes? Because the ground he was standing on was excellent. The ground he was standing on was holy. In this revelation of the Lord's presence, there was a demand to revere, to acknowledge, to humble oneself and realize that the, the, the privilege of being in the presence of one holy, awesome, majestic, and glorious. And just as we have in the tradition of monarchy through the ages, a certain deference to the king that is the protocol of being in his presence, how much more the one who isn't holy by myth or by fiat, but who is holy by absolute demonstration of the sum of his perfections. The Lord has communicated his holiness in these kinds of ways. Moses removed his shoes. He witnessed the aseity, that it means the self-existence of God, displayed in fiery theophany, that is, fiery revelation of God in a tangible form to communicate something of his perfections and glory that would otherwise be lost on our senses. He trembled, Moses did, before the voice of God as he witnessed his power and glory. Think of another way the holiness of God is communicated through Scripture. In the structure of tabernacle and temple worship. The architecture of that building contained within its most sacred chamber, the what? The Holy of Holies. This was the most, for that era of history, the most guarded place on earth. The most exclusive location in all of the universe, if you will, or the planet at least we could say, was reserved for that area. Why? To communicate the holiness of God. This was defended by his powerful and fearsome judgments from all save one, and that was the high priest. But the high priest couldn't just walk in there willy-nilly whenever he wanted to on a whim or his personal pleasure. The high priest had to be consecrated through ceremonial washings. He had to be presentable, otherwise he was not worthy of being in the same vicinity as the presence of a holy God. Blood atonement alone secured entry and audience with the Holy One. Sins must be atoned for in order for the presence of the Holy One to dwell with mere man. The Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament shook with the voice of heaven affirming, this is my beloved Son, you remember? And Jesus himself shone with that light of his pre-incarnate glory. Illustrating to, demonstrating to the disciples and to all who read that account, the holiness of the second person of the Godhead. And this holiness eclipsed the greatest of prophets, Elijah, 
and the greatest of lawgivers, Moses, of old. He was in a class all to himself. He was holy. His disciples are yet stunned again in the presence of his holiness, which overwhelms them with a sense of awe and at times fear. Yes, appropriate fear. At times conviction and anguish. Yes, appropriate guilt because of their own unworthiness. And so Peter cries, depart from me a sinner. I'm not worthy of your presence. Why? Because he understood in that moment that he was in the presence of someone holy, someone not worthy of him, a mere lowly sinner, a man depraved of heart. Something needed to change in the being of Peter in order for him to be comfortable in the presence of something so other, so much holier and above him. The visions of John, the judgments of our Lord's coming, the miracles of the incarnate Christ, the revelations, and as I said, theophanies of the Old Testament, all these communicate the greater context of God's glory. And here in Psalm 99, the author joins the chorus of the throne room seraphim in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah chapter 6. You remember we sang an adaptation of this vision this morning in our very first song, and the, cor- the chorus of which is, holy, holy, holy. And in the presence of the throne room of God, we have this vision through the eyes of the prophet of seraphim, creatures specially designed to honor the Lord and acknowledge his holiness. And so with wings, they cover their faces, you know, six wings in all in this array where the very design of these creatures acknowledges the presence of a holy God. And what do they cry three times over and forever? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It is therefore fitting that Psalm 99 would echo that three times repeated holy refrain. Psalm 99.3, holy is he, the verse closes. Psalm 99.5, again, holy is he, the verse closes. And the, and the song uh, closes in verse 9, for the Lord our God is holy. A testimony to the inspiration of Holy Scripture is patterns like this. The thrice revealed and thrice magnified holiness of God. It is a multiplication of his attributes meant to magnify to our attention the significance of what we witness about the attributes of God in his perfections, in his glory, in his holiness. This is such a stark contrast, is it not? To vain and cheap and counterfeit self-aggrandizing and self-affirming claims to holiness or greatness that man has. What a contrast to the self-acclaim of sinful men. Spurgeon writes the following, quote, The annals of most human governments have been written in the tears of the downtrodden and the curses of the oppressed. The chronicles of the Lord's kingdom are of another sort. Truth shines, <clears throat> truth shines in each line, goodness in every syllable, and justice in every letter. Glory be to the name of the king whose gentle glory beams from between the cherubic wings. Amen. That is an introduction to Psalm 99 and its central theme, which is our God is holy. Let us consider these three sections set apart by references to the holiness of God. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 5. Verses 6 through 9 under this heading. Our God upholds and champions the following. Number one, a holy position. Our God upholds, he champions a holy position. His rank 
His authority, His office, His power is holy. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, our God upholds, He champions a holy jurisprudence. This is righteousness with respect to the law. Righteousness with respect to edicts, orders, decrees, and the uh, constitution of things. Thirdly, our God upholds and champions a holy mediation. The mediation means to go between. The relationship that God has established through priestly mediation and so forth, and through a mediator that stands between Him and us, is something that is holy, and it is championed by the Lord and in His Word in Psalm 99. Consider our first major point this morning. Our God upholds and champions a holy position. Listen to the spatial metaphors, the situation, if you will, that are meant to convey the office, rank, power, and sovereignty of our Lord. Notice 99.1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. The reigning of the Lord is a reference to his position, his rule. And further illustrated the rest of the verse, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. It's a spatial metaphor. It indicates a posture, a position, a holy position of authority. Furthermore, the Lord is great in Zion. This location again, Zion, refers to something of his holiness and character. He is exalted, it says, over all the peoples. This prepositional uh, phrasing here refers to, again, his posture of ultimate authority. Finally, verse 3, let them praise our great, your great and awesome name, holy is he. Verses 1 through 3 describe a holy position of our Lord, a position which he upholds and champions, he maintains, and will never change. This position of holiness of our God has been from forever past and is only magnified to our understanding as we move through the record of history. But our God never changes. This holiness is something that he maintains and has maintained and will maintain in perpetuity forever. This is emphasized in verses 1 through 3 by three references to rank and response. In other words, this is the ranking or the position of the Lord And then this is the response that is worthy of recognizing that position. Note in verse 1, the beginning, the Lord reigns. This is reference to his rank. Remember, Yahweh is king. Lord there translated Yahweh, he reigns. We are under his rule. We serve at his pleasure. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are subject to the terms and conditions of his country, if you will, of his reign, of his realm. The Lord reigns. That's his rank. And what should the people do? It says, let the peoples tremble. The lordship of Yahweh is deserving of or worthy of or commands the trembling of the peoples. How popular is it to proclaim that the Lord is a God who should be trembled before? I don't think it's as popular as maybe as it once was. You think of the cathedrals of old, and I'm told by architectural scholars that The cathedrals are designed so that you look small. When you enter into this structure that took, you know, hundreds of years to build, and you have these soaring spaces, and you have this kind of verticality and distance, and this this sense as you walk into that building that I tremble before a God who is much larger than me. 
Just an analogy, just a metaphor. However, a cathedral is one example built by man. But what else might we look at and tremble before as it is evidence of the Lord's rank and position? Could not creation, nature itself, be just that? How many uh, national parks command the attention of tourists by the millions in this country? There's wayside stops, there's brown information signs, and on your journey, you pull off beside the road, and what do you behold? Something of awe. A waterfowl that towers into the clouds, or waterfall, that towers into the clouds. A canyon that you can't see the dis- uh, where it ends because it is so large and so deep that you shudder as you look over the edge of that Grand Canyon and so forth. These are things that command the attention and stir within us a sense of smallness and awe. And isn't it sad that we live in a culture where people are more likely to tremble before the Grand Canyon than they are the God revealed in Scripture? Consider this analogy, illustration. You're at the beach. You have your headphones on. You're enjoying yourselves. And for some reason, you're involved with something in your back is to the waves. Well, you're oblivious because of this distraction to a threat that develops in short order. A tsunami, we were talking about what is a natural disaster that could take out you know, a whole beach and a whole people in a moment. There have been tsunamis. Dave was telling me of one this morning in history that have killed thousands of people in one swell of water, even over a million one tsunami it's, uh, sus- was suspected of killing in the 19th century or something along those lines. So anyway, here you are with your headphones on, oblivious to the water, and behind you, there's this swell of water rising 100 feet, and you have a very limited time to hightail it out of there, and you are totally uh, distracted, so you do not realize that this wave is there. Now, in this position, you might argue, you might uh, realize, or, or you might deny the existence of the wave, but you would prove yourself a fool. In mere moments, if you don't notice what's going on, and change your posture with respect to this threat, you will be instantly destroyed. Now those headphones and this oblivious stance is kind of like our culture steeped in secularism and unbelief these days. There is a wave to be feared, if you will. There is a revelation of the holiness of God before which man must tremble. And just because you have the headphones on of modern distraction, and just because you cover your eyes with your sinful self-inflicted blindness does not mean that there is a God to be feared and everyone will answer to him and that there is a day of reckoning. You know, it used to be that biblical preaching, we talked about this some last week, that Peter tells us that the sufferings and glories of Christ are the theme of the prophets, the theme of godly preaching, and they command the attention of all history and heaven. And it used to be that preaching was more understood within the church as drawing our attention to the glories of God in a way that would make us tremble in our boots and quake in our sin and be moved to repent and to believe. Was this not the apostolic witness? Peter proclaims to the crowds that gather at his sermon at at Pentecost. He says, the very one whom you killed was the son of God, the holiest one of all, and you destroyed him in your ignorant, arrogant unbelief. The people are cut to their heart. and What do they do? They tremble before the holy God whose son they've just slaughtered. And they cry out, What must we do to be saved? And by the grace of God, by the movement of the Holy Spirit, there was added thousands to the church that day. This was not a unique witness by Peter. He was simply echoing what had gone before. 
The psalmist in Psalm 99 said as much when he declared, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Second holy position or rank that deserves a response. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. So the rank is this throne upon the cherubim. The response is, let the earth quake. What is referred to here? Cherubim, we've noted in our Genesis study, are guardians of the sacred realm and presence of the Lord. Young people, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, could they go right back in? Could they go? Why not? What? 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 There was an angel guarding it with a fiery sword. Thank you, Theo. That's exactly what I was looking for. Though those two cherubim, if you will, stood at the gate of Eden, and they guarded the presence, God's holy realm and presence, from any trespassers. You could not enter the Garden of Eden without going through a flaming sword, and you better believe no one was going to make it through there. Now, through the age of God's revelation, cherubim have represented the guardians of God's holy presence in different ways. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. Young people, what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? What was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two angels, that's right, two cherubim. Right? And in between was the mercy seat. And where would God show up when all of the prerequisites were met and the temple and tabernacle worship was going on? Well, he would come and demonstrate his presence right there, enthroned, if you will, upon the cherubim, between the cherubim, above the mercy seat. That's where God would be enthroned with his people. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. More references to cherubim appear through Scripture. At the time of Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 38, 19 through 20, you can study that on your own time. In these sections, we see cherubim as a mobile chariot, if you will, and atop is a throne. And these cherubim are moving. They're moving out of the temple. Why? Because God had removed his presence from the people as judgment for their sin. And again, the cherubim in that instance represent guarding the holy presence of our God. Nothing unclean. Nothing sinful, nothing broken or maimed, and nothing subject to the curse of the fall will be entertained, ultimately speaking, in the presence of the Lord. And the cherubim are there to make sure that that's the case. So if you realize that this is true, that there's a flaming sword that guards the way to hope for the future, that guards re-entrance into Eden, if you realize that that's the case, what response is worthy of this knowledge, of this revelation? Well, quaking in your boots. It says, the Lord sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Ezekiel uh, 38, maybe I will reference that uh, portion quickly as it relates to this passage so well. Ezekiel 38, if you want to turn there with me, verse 19. For in my jealousy, this is the Lord speaking, the first person. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things shall creep on the ground, that creep on the ground, and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. This is a reference, the prophets, of appropriate response to the revelation of the Lord enthroned upon the cherubim 
and exclusive in His holiness. This reference actually joins Ezekiel 10, which was one I had in mind before, which uh, actually lay out a vision of the cherubim carrying the presence of the Lord away from the temple. 2 Kings 19.15, King Hezekiah prays and the Lord hears his prayer, but he prays as he rightly ought, not as the sovereign, even though he enjoyed that position as king of Israel at the time, but acknowledging a greater sovereign still. And he declares, or he beseeches the king who sits enthroned upon the cherubim to answer his prayer. (coughs) Jeremiah 10, our worship text, communicates similar ideas. The earthquakes at the presence of the Lord revealed in his cherubic throne uh, position, if you will. Think of times when the earth literally shook at the presence of the Lord. Young people, can you name a time when there was a great earthquake? When God showed up and there was a great earthquake? Yeah. Name one time. Does anybody know? Noah's Ark? Oh, yeah. I, that probably is a good example. The earth certainly shook, I would say, when the fountains of the great deep broke forth and the presence of God, His holiness, was demonstrated in uh, condemning to a watery grave all the unrepentant you know, sinners at that time. How about Mount Sinai? At Mount Sinai, there was a quaking. The mountain shook and trembled. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was revealed in His holiness on that place. Uh, think of the cross itself. When Jesus died on Calvary, when the holiness of God was demonstrated in this great atoning act, when God sent His only Son to die for us, the magnitude of that moment and the power and the holiness of God was demonstrated as rocks cried out and the earth split before the Lord in His presence. Remember the followers of Korah? They led a rebellion against the Lord's anointed. At that time, Moses, what happened? The earth shook and swallowed them all up. At the time of Jesus' death, the earth shook and gave forth from the grave, people. It's amazing. I love to juxtapose those two moments when people who were once dead, the earth shook before the presence of the Lord and resurrections happen. The Lord, is uh, when He appears, the earth shakes, the earthquakes, and people ought to shake before Him as well. That's the rank and the response. Now, verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So we have rank and response, right? Lordship, trembling peoples. The throne and thrown upon the cherubim, earthquakes. Then here we have exalted in Zion, the people's praise. So far, these first two revelations are ones of utter shock, terror, fear, horror, in light of the sheer power and authority of God. The third one has redemptive hope. Since God in his ranking is exalted in Zion, you and I can respond not just in terror, not just in trembling, not just in quaking, but in praise. What is Zion? What does it represent? It's the place of God's meeting with his people where the sacrifice was provided, atonement was there, and thus reconciliation Restored relationship was available by this means. Zion represents, in geographic terms, the gospel. And because of the gospel, because God is great in the salvation of man provided, because God is great in Zion, we, his people, can praise him. Why do we gather on each Lord's day and worship the Lord with our songs of praise? Why do we listen to his word proclaimed? Why do we set aside priority schedule in our week to meet in this place? This is why. Because God is great in Zion. 
He is exalted and proven holy in the gospel, and this deserves the praises of all the peoples, especially us, the saved ones, the ones who realize this, whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit to realize the greatness and holiness of our God revealed in creation and in redemption. Major point number two this morning. Our God upholds and champions not just a holy position, but holy jurisprudence. Verse 4, the king in his might, and king, this should be capital K in your translation there, referring to Yahweh here, the king in his might loves justice. You, now speaking directly to that king, have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Three terms that refer to the jurisprudence of, the, of Yahweh king. Justice, equity established, and righteousness in Jacob. Justice, equity, and righteousness. The Lord upholds, he maintains, and he champions a holy jurisprudence. Now, every ordered society has some semblance of law. You cannot have any order, any peace, any society, any social structure without it. But how many of us hear the laments of our culture and how many of us have joined them by crying out, justice has fallen in the streets, it's stumbled in the public square. The state, the jurisprudence in our day is all upside down. The guilty are acquitted and the innocent are condemned in a perverse sense of jurisprudence. This is not a cry unique to Christians, even though they don't understand what justice is. People in our day celebrate and they, uh, act, you know, they're activists for, they agitate for. There's an outrage culture and all terms like social justice are popular. And all of these things represent this visceral sense, even in our nation today, that we would like sound jurisprudence to return to our society. Well, this sound jurisprudence has a holy standard. It has an ultimate authority. It has an unchanging word. It has a measure that applies in every case. And this is the word of God. God in his holy law, in the revelation of his terms of righteousness, has revealed his holy jurisprudence. And no nation will stand long without honoring as much. And nations will throw themselves and peoples and individuals into moral chaos to the degree that they depart, that they stray from God's standards of jurisprudence. The psalmist recognizes this thirst for righteousness, for order to return, for peace to be secured, for righteousness to prevail, for peace of mind to be available for those who know that they will not be unjustly condemned and downtrodden and oppressed. He realizes this and recognizes its source. The king, Yahweh, in his might, he loves justice. Justice is loved by Yahweh and executed. He doesn't just celebrate it. It's not just in the kingdom of God, an abstract ideal, but it is accomplished. This is why we preach, if we are preaching biblically, a day of judgment to come in the future. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that there is a particular day of reckoning where the balances of justice will be set aright to perfection. And no minor or major infraction will be ignored, overlooked, or will escape the attention of the omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, and the omniscient, all-knowing one. This is the day of justice that we proclaim revealed in Scripture. And it is important that we do so because Psalm 99 tells us that this king loves justice, the Lord. 
in his day of reckoning, will establish equity, will establish righteousness, and will enforce justice. This is the holy jurisprudence that our Lord upholds and champions. Equity is established. Under the law of God, there is true impartiality. All are truly equal under the law. The balances are perfectly weighed by the perfect judge who sees and knows all. You guys remember Daniel and Belshazzar, the story in Daniel 5? Yeah, uh, so let's turn there for a moment, if you would, in Daniel 5. What happened on the wall, kids? So Belshazzar's feasting. He's uh, blaspheming the Lord by using temples, the temple instruments to get drunk, the temple furniture for his orgies and so forth. And uh, what happens on the walls? Anyone remember? There was a giant hand that reached out from heaven. You guys remember? Yeah. That's correct. And, what, and did it write something on the wall? You remember that? And so Daniel was called to translate. So here we pick up on the story in Daniel chapter 5, verse 24. And from his presence, the hand was sent. This is Daniel revealing to the king the meaning of this incident. From his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. So pausing there, you look on the wall, imagine yourself at this drunken feast, and you could hear a pin drop in the room. There's broken dishes around the feet, and everybody's awestruck at what they just realized. All of a sudden, the holiness of God is evident on the wall of even the pagan king. Perhaps he was the most powerful at that time, yet he was not more powerful than Yahweh king. And proving as much, this giant hand from glory reaches down and writes on the wall the following, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. So God's servant Daniel interprets, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So you see in this act of holy jurisprudence, God demonstrated that he establishes equity. Most kings are proud and arrogant because of their position. They figure that they are above the law. After all, who's going to hold them accountable? If you, by executive order, can summon all the aircraft carriers and all the troops at your command then it might give you a false sense of security. Kings who serve in this way are fools. They're like Belshazzar, blaspheming, ignoring, remember, the tidal wave with their headphones on, to use a modern analogy. They're drinking and, and uh, enjoying themselves which that, with that which God has graciously provided to them, even by way of nature itself, disregarding the author of all these things. But Daniel 5 tells us that there will come a day of reckoning where equity will be established and we will be weighed in the balances. And if we do not know Jesus Christ, if we do not trust that his shed blood cleanses us from all sins and we are weighed in the balances, just like Belshazzar, we will be found wanting. Our life will be required for us. And the only thing in our future then is that God's glory is magnified in the eternal punishment and destruction of the unbeliever in hell itself. Equity will be established. God has furthermore established justice, equity, and righteousness in Jacob. Again, along the theme of our first point, there are two fearful acknowledgments, justice and equity, but then there's this hopeful acknowledgement as well. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. 
Is there any hope for a sinner to be weighed in the balances and to be redeemed, atoned, forgiven? There is. And this is according to a set of terms which the Bible describes as covenant. God will be true to his promises that he made to the patriarchs of old. This reference to Jacob is a reference, shorthand, to covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. If you are bound to him by covenant, if you believe uh, in him and have agreed to the terms, if you will, of the salvation that he has provided, if you, if you place faith in his provision, his merciful provision of the atoning lamb, ultimately atoning lamb of God to wash away your sin, there is righteousness in Jacob and you will be uh, righteously judged against the enemies of your soul in the future and you will be acquitted of the sins against you because another has died in your place. Thus we see in Psalm 99, our God upholds and champions a holy position and a holy jurisprudence. Third and final point this morning, our God upholds and champions a holy mediation. This prior point of righteousness in Jacob, how is that possible, you might ask? The scriptures go on, even Psalm 99, to declare. Notice the priestly references in verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Then verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The holy mediation or the go-between role of a priest is acknowledged, it's celebrated, commemorated in Psalm 99.6. As the author references ways that God has established his relationship with man, he references three priestly figures, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. I submit to you that all of these prefigured the priest of priests, if you will. The once and uh, for all sacrifice, the only, ultimately speaking, mediator between God and man. And of course, Hebrews reveals him in the tradition of this priestly symbology to be Christ our Lord. Think of Moses, though, and how he prefigured Christ's role. Numbers 14 is a good example. You might ask, well, I thought Moses was a prophet, you know, a leader of the people. In what sense is he ref- is, can he be associated with the priesthood? Well, Numbers um, 14 is a good example. Here, if you remember the situation, the people of God have, have once again transgressed God's law, and God is threatening in His holiness and His righteousness to destroy them. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? You grasp the context there? Like in our analogy earlier, how long will they keep the headphones on of self-centered distraction while there's a tsunami of my divine justice and judgment uh, chasing them down, about to swallow them in mere moments? Verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, 
Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he, was ki- and, uh, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, listen, 17, Moses cries out to the Lord, Please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. How does the Lord respond? Verse 20 records. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Do you see the role that Moses played in this incident? He was interceding. He was pleading the case of the people before a holy God. And he was saying, please, in the interest of preserving your glory, so that the enemy nations won't speak ill of you, would you have mercy on this people? Moses knew how to pray. As he did so, he prayed as a priest, in a priestly, mediatory fashion, going between the people and God. The Lord hears his prayer, and does God truly change his mind? No. This situation, it's not as if God had intentions, and then Moses was able to twist his arm. In the grand scheme of things, this, the sovereign order of this event was set up to demonstrate that God responds to a mediator who serves in a priestly role to intercede on behalf of the people, it was a foreshadowing of Christ. What this story tells us is, if there is no one to plead our case, wherein the glory of God can be preserved and we can be forgiven at the same time, we are doomed. Ultimately, was Moses this person? No. Was Samuel? Was Aaron? No. Ultimately, these figures would be eclipsed by one who could actually satisfy the terms of atonement in his own blood. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So this is the mediatory history to which our author refers. The legacies of these men testified to both intercessory mercies and disciplinary judgments of the Lord. Demonstrates, uh, this demonstrates the merits of a corporate mediator, yet they fell short of sufficiently fulfilling that role In so doing, they prefigure in type and shadow a sufficient mediator to come. And that is the holy mediation that our author in Psalm 99 references. He goes on to describe the revelation of the Lord in his presence among the people in verse 7. Moses references as well. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them, speaking of the faithful ones before so here, in this holy, uh, in celebrating the holiness of God, the author acknowledges the presence of God, mercifully dwelling with his people, and mercifully delivering to them his word. And in acknowledging these, he acknowledges that the Lord reigns, not only in judgment over the well-deserving peoples who yet remain in their sins, but he also reigns in mercy 
delivering the very means whereby a people can be redeemed of their sins, called out from their depravity, set apart and consecrated, given robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ to dwell in his presence in good standing and to become a people who exist redeemed to praise his holy name. To become a people for whom their lips, Psalm 99, is fitted. This is God's plan in salvation. This is the purpose of his mediation. One final point as we close this sermon, and I'd like to turn you to a cross-reference, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 reveals to us how God's justice and glory, His holiness and mercy can be reconciled. But note before we turn there, in anticipation of this issue in Psalm 99, 8, O Lord our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Now in the immediate context, we recognize that the Lord had purposes in disciplinary correction, as well as purposes in hearing the voice of his servants, i.e. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. But in the greater scope of things, I believe here a deeper concept is illustrated, and it is this question, how can God forgive and avenge wrongdoings? How can God forgive and still be holy? This question is ultimately answered in the gospel and is done so in apostolic clarity in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, the apostle writes, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is our answer, saints. How can God be an avenger of our wrongdoings and forgive us? How can those truths be reconciled? A propitiation, meaning a wrath-absorbing sacrifice must be provided. And this is the reference in Romans 3. Jesus' blood was shed as we celebrated at the Lord's table last week in order to satisfy the vengeance that our sin deserved. In Jesus' spilled blood, our wrongdoings were avenged. And in that sovereign act on Calvary, as a consequence, we who place faith in that holy act were forgiven. Praise His holy name. This is holy mediation fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You guys remember last week, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 was our passage. And Peter writes, he says that all the prophets and uh, basically all the scriptures, all biblical preaching hinges upon the theme of the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Holy Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And in our text today, we will go back to Psalm 99 and we see here that the sufferings and glories of Christ are central to this theme of this song. They are the fulfillment of the terms of atonement, where sin is avenged 
and his people are forgiven. They are the fulfillment in the incarnation of the majesty of the Lord as Christ declared his kingdom had come in that sovereign act. Fulfilling Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. The kingdom of God came in the incarnation and the fulfillment of the terms of redemption and is now expanding across the globe at God's sovereignly intended speed, drawing in from the coastland regions a people to praise his holy name. A people that recognize his rank, that he reigns, that he is enthroned upon the cherubim, that he is great in Zion and respond accordingly with fear and praise. They tremble and they quake, yet then they realize their sin atone in Christ and they praise him, his great and awesome name. Thus Psalm 99.9 closes anticipating this moment. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your holiness in your scriptures. We thank you that the Spirit has seen fit to open the eyes of every believer in this room to realize their hell-deserving state in sin and to place their faith in the atoning work of Christ to avenge their sin and to render them holy, to forgive them of their sin that we might stand in your presence without being incinerated and destroyed and cast out forever. Thank you, Lord, for these holy truths. I pray that you would arrest the attention of our souls as your holiness is displayed to us in your holy scriptures and even in your world. I pray that you would be exalted on the praises, the confession, the obedience, and the more consistent walk and the sanctifying process of the believers who hear this message as we seek to live in light of your holiness and truth. Anoint us to that end, and when upon your return or when you call us home, may you see in us ever more so with each day as you approach a heart that recognizes your holiness, singing exaltations to the Lord, worshiping at your holy mountain, recognizing that our Lord, the Lord, our God is holy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.